You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 660. What people are ashamed of usually makes a good story. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. If you guys are looking for jobs in the film industry or need to hire talent, Backstage Crew is the leading career marketplace to find film jobs and hire talent of all kinds. Browse easily and apply to hundreds of open roles across production types and post a job to quickly find the skilled talent you need to bring your film or project to life. Find the next gig or your crew with Backstage Crew. Get started for free today at Backstage.com and you can post your first job for free using the code INDIE80. That's INDIE80. Today's show is also sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Well, guys, you are in for a treat. Today's guest is Christopher Lockhart, who is a story editor at WME William Morris Endeavor, the world's largest talent agency, where he curates projects for A-list actors and artists such as Denzel Washington, Rachel McAdams, Russell Crowe, and so on. He has read over 60,000 screenplays over his career and is also an award-winning filmmaker and member of the WGA, PGA, and Television Academy. He's also created the amazing Facebook group called The Inside Pitch, where he helps screenwriters navigate the crazy world of screenwriting in Hollywood from inside the machine. And that's why I wanted to have Chris on the show. I wanted to talk to somebody behind the walls, behind the walls where everybody wants to get to. He is there and he has a very unique perspective on story, on what sells, on what movie stars are looking for, because this is what he does day in and day out. And as you heard at the beginning of the episode, Chris and I have teamed up to bring you the How to Be a Hollywood Script Writer webinar at IFH Academy, which will not only make you become a a script reader and understand the mentality behind script reading, but you will also become a much better screenwriter just by understanding the craft 
of breaking down story after story and learning these pro tips that Jack and Chris bring to the webinar. Again, you can gain access to that webinar at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash script reader. Now, without any further ado, please enjoy my eye-opening conversation with Christopher Lockhart. I'd like to welcome to the show Christopher Lockhart. Thank you for so much for being on the show, Christopher. Thank you. It's great to, to be able to talk to somebody. <laughs> exactly. As we're we're all locked up in our in our little uh, quarantine caves here in LA. Well, I was going to ask you though, like you know, you being on the agency side, I've been hearing from a lot of agents and managers to say that the, the world has changed. They're never going to jump into a car for an hour and a half again to go take a thirty minute meeting and then come back to their office. Uh, what 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 are you hearing on your end? Well, you know, my policy has always been that uh, I try to get people to come to me for my meetings, generally speaking. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that that we have been forced out of our comfort zone. Believe it or not, our comfort zone was driving an hour and a half to go to a meeting. And now we realize that this technology works. It's uh, equally as efficient. And uh perhaps more efficient because now we can utilize our time more wisely. Let's face it, less time in an automobile uh, makes a very big difference. And uh, I think we're gonna see this ripple through a lot of industries. I think, for example, the commercial real estate industry is, you know, they're gonna end up with uh, a lot of vacant buildings because I think a lot, of a lot of companies might actually have people just work from home in the future. Mm -hmm. It's cheaper, it's easier, right? You know less rent, um, right. less wear and tear. I think that there are a lot of people who would be open to that. Um, I haven't been in my office in many months. Um, uh, I look forward to getting back to it. Uh, just, you know, just because, you know, you never know what you have until it's gone. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I hope that a lot of us, just generally speaking, not even with work, but just with life, that we realize, I think, sort of how lucky we are, generally speaking. And then there are some pluses to this. Perhaps some people are spending more time with their families mm -hmm. uh, than they might have or maybe want to. But uh, <laughs> I think that there are some definite pluses to 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 this. At uh, least uh, need to cling to those. At least otherwise. Hey, there's some sort of silver lining in this ridiculousness that is 2020. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think it's 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 going to upend the commercial real estate business without question because there's going to be a lot less people um, renting uh, because they don't need to. Like, you know, I know attorneys and things like that. They're like, I'm shutting down my office because I don't need right. it anymore. Um, so, so before we get started, how did you get into the business? Uh, you know, it's always just oh, who you know. So, <laughs> you know, who you know is very important. And uh, uh, I've been out here for a while uh, working as a writer. And, and and then, you know, I sort of had some uh, uh, crossroads and, and some things happened in my life. And an, an opportunity was presented to me to go and meet with this um, Uber agent named Ed Lamato, who was the uh, 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 co-president at ICM and agent to the stars, Mel Gibson, Denzel Washington, Richard Gere, Michelle Pfeiffer, Robert Downey Jr., Liam Neeson, you know, go on and on. And um, he basically needed a script consultant. He needed somebody uh, who could uh, 
uh, go through all of these projects that were coming to his office for his clients. And, you know, make a long story short, I took the job and 25 years later. <laughs> and bang, bing, bang, boom, we're here. <laughs> Now, and, and did you, when you were working with, um, well, you've been, you've been working with, you know, uh, big actors and big, uh, big agencies because you moved from ICM to over to um, WMA, uh, WME, excuse me. Both actually. Yeah. Because uh, uh, in 2007, we left ICM, we went to William Morris. Mm -hmm. And then in 2009, William Morris merged with Endeavor and then it became WME. Right. And you've been working with clients, high-end clients ever since then doing the same thing, just basically vetting their projects. So you've, you, you, you have a very inside, inside uh, information in regards to what big movie stars are looking for in their movie, in their movie projects, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, uh, and believe it or not, it's, it's not always, it's not really rocket science. <laughs> You know, uh, they're really just looking for good projects. And, and um, I think the the smartest actors are the ones who don't pigeonhole themselves. So very rarely do I get marching orders. You know, rarely do I get a client who says, listen, I only want a script that does A, B and C. Uh, that that order comes down sometimes, but not often. And. Uh, and I think that's how actors really succeed, because um, they are open minded to all different kinds of projects. And uh, hopefully the ones that I'm sending their way are are good. They can't do all of the projects that are sent their way. They can only do some. Uh, but um, but yeah, my job is to uh, is to be uh, be a taster, you know, so to speak. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, sometimes I liken myself to a little, uh, I'm like a real estate agent, you know, where I'm trying to find uh, a piece of property for a client. And um, the job involves other things as well. Yeah, there's a lot of reading, but um I'm a little bit of a development executive because I'll work with some of our writer director clients uh, on their projects from the very beginning. Uh, sometimes I'm called in in like a Hail Mary pass to go into the editing room and uh, consult there. So I basically work with story anywhere from the very earliest of the development process right through post. I even go, uh, uh, um, onto sets, you know, and sort of work from there also. So, so, it, so it, the job entails a lot of, of elements that make it interesting because each day is different. Maybe not right now. Right now, every day is exactly. <laughs> it's Groundhog's Day. It's Groundhog's Day. But typically, um, it, it's, it's, it is varied, but there's a lot of reading. There's no doubt about that. Lots and lots of homework to do. Uh, now, obviously, COVID has upended the entire world, uh, let alone our small little corner of the world that is Hollywood. How do you see it, uh, COVID affecting not only Hollywood as we're currently seeing it and what you're seeing currently right now? Because it's changing pretty much on a weekly, <laughs> weekly or monthly yeah. basis I mean, at this point. Warner Brothers just broke the news about uh, how they're going to start to release 
their projects for 2021. And it's pretty shattering. Uh, actually, it's really changing the game a lot. How, how are they doing it? How, I haven't read that. Well, one. I, I've, I only skimmed through it because it literally just came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are uh, going to do a day and date with um, HBO Max right. uh, with a 31 day license. And um, so it, it's it, it's it looks pretty complicated. Uh, I'm sure it will be complicated from the agency end uh, as these deals, of course, have to be brokered. So, um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure yet uh, uh, how it's going uh, to ripple out or what the other studios are going to do. But let's face it, everybody, everybody's improvising. And people always ask, oh, you know, what's the business going to be like in six months? I don't have a clue. I know, I know just as much as you do. If you had asked me yesterday about Warner Brothers release plan for 2021, I wouldn't have told you that this is what they were going to do. So um, maybe the writing was on the wall for other people who are uh, more intuitive or uh, pay more attention to that. But uh, I don't I I don't have a clue. I'm literally riding the surf like everybody else. No, so I know Wonder Woman is being released, uh, I think Christmas Day or something like that. Uh, day in and day is what they're going to release in the theater and they're going to do it. So it's a similar thing, but they're only going to allow it on the platform for 31 days. And then it, right. That's, then right. it gets pulled exactly. off. That's right. That's exactly what uh, they are doing for all of their 2021 releases. Wow. That is a huge, that's really upside down. Yeah, because 2021, even with the vaccine, with everything, we're not going to get back to where we were in 2019 well, for at least uh, a couple of years. Well, what what might this news even uh, do, let's say, to the stockholders of uh, AMC? You know, I mean, is this going to send complete panic through the ranks there? So, uh, you know, this is just this has been a crazy year. And people who say, oh, I can't wait until 2020 ends. Like there's just going to be a hell of a lot more of this in 2021. Right. I keep telling people 2020 can make 20, 2021 can make 2020 look like 2019. Very, very well might. I you, hope not. I hope not too. Trust me. Cause I, I, know. I don't know how much more I personally can take. I don't think any of us can. I, I just, I, it's like I'm on a 12 step program. I just, I, <laughs> I take this day, you know, one day at a time. I really right. think that's, that's just the best way to do it because things are changing so rapidly. Um, you know, there were a lot of layoffs uh, throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who knows? You know, who knows if anybody will even have a job in six months? So uh, it's just it, it's too much to think about. Mm-hmm. So I just sort of do what it is that I need to do day in and day out. And I just don't think about or try to control those things that are in the future. And how do you think all of this is affecting screenwriters? Because, you know, and how, how can they kind of adjust themselves to this new, this new world that's changing well, by the minute? All, what's new about isolation for a screenwriter? Well, there's so that. This, this is, you know, this is, if there is anybody in the industry who can thrive during this time, it is the writer. Because the writer should be writing. That's exactly what they should be doing now. It's hard for a director to go out and direct Mm. or a producer to produce, but a writer can be writing at this very moment. By the end of COVID, every writer in town should have two to three new scripts that they've written. 
Um, and there are still deals, you know, so there are still still um, writing deals going on and uh, writers are working. So I think if if anything, um, they ha- have the the um, they're able to make the best out of this. Now there was uh, there's a I think one misconception that I, I I hear a lot of screenwriters that I talk to all the time is that they very much like independent filmmakers they think they're making films today like it was 1992 so they like thinking of like oh I'll just go to Sundance and I'll get this and that and and they have this kind of magical world that was then I think screenwriters have the same thing with the spec market which in the 90s I mean the Shane Blacks and the Joe Esther houses I mean. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the spec market and what is if there is a spec market? Is it happening? What's the deal? Yeah, there's not really all that much of a spec market right now. Uh, a few scripts have sold. Clearly, this is uh, this is not a banner year for uh, selling a screenplay on spec, uh, which is why screenwriters should be writing because there is a possibility that when this drought is over that people will be looking for content, much like after, uh, you know, any WGA strike, you know, we've often seen, remember a lot of that, that, uh, spec, uh, boom of the early nineties, uh, was fueled by the writer's strike in the late eighties. So, uh, so there is a great possibility that, uh, that will be hungry for content once the industry is up and running again, which is why people should be writing now. Worry less about the business at this moment and concentrate more on the creative, because then I think you will be prepared for the business when it is reanimated. Now, what is some? What is one of the biggest misconceptions that screenwriters have about the industry, about Hollywood in general? Oh boy, uh, I don't know. Probably thousands. Um, uh, a few. I, I think. Uh, well, I don't know. I think that that maybe some more naive writers might think that they literally just sort of can write a screenplay and then the doors sort of open for them. I don't really understand that that process as to how the doors would just automatically open, but that's. But that's what they think or they feel like because they've written a screenplay that the industry owes them the respect and the time to read their script when that is definitely not the case <laughs> by any means. I'm not saying that they don't deserve the respect and time. Sure, they do. But nobody's going to give it to them. So uh, so I think that's a really big Misconception. I think another big misconception, of course, is that they're going to make millions and millions and millions of dollars writing screenplays when, like anybody in this business, it's a lot of struggle. And one reason, of course, that writers, at least in the WGA, get paid what they get paid is because that might be all that they get paid for three or four years. And uh, and so they need that money to hold them over. Right. You know, this is why actors get residuals and et cetera, et cetera, because the work is often far and few between. So. um, So there is a lot of struggle. There are, uh, uh, I think, misconceptions that a writer sells a script and their career is made. I would say probably the majority of writers who sell scripts never, never go on to a career. After that, it's, you know, it's like a one hit wonder. 
uh, it, it, you're always working. It never gets easy. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It never gets easy. Uh, and I really think that a lot of writers who haven't been out here, um, they think, yeah, I just, I just need to sell that one script. I'm like, no, it, you know, listen, if, if you sell it and it, and it, uh, and it rocks the town, that's one thing, but that's not most, that's not most script sales. You know, right. most script sales are for low to no money and uh, they go under the radar. The movie's never made or if the movie is made, nobody sees it. Right. So there's just so there's so many ways for your career not to get started after it's gotten started. It's funny because I, I always tell people about Kaufman and, and then Sorkin, like, the, you know, they, they have scripts that they, they can't they can't produce. Like they, they can't, that they're, they're amazing, but no one's willing to give the money. And I always tell them if, if Charlie Kaufman and Aaron Sorkin are having problems, what do you think you're going to have right. <laughs> to right, be, exactly right. be as realistic as possible about this? Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, and, and, and not every script that, uh, an A-list writer writes, uh, hits it out of the ballpark. Oh, you know, yeah, I've read a lot of scripts by writers that I love and I'm like, yeah, this just doesn't work. Uh, this just doesn't work. And this probably wasn't a great project. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, that happens all the time. And, and for new writers, I think that they're often under the impression that because they wrote a screenplay that they've written a screenplay. And, uh, yeah, often when you read it, yeah, sure. It starts with fade in. It's got fade out. It's got slug lines. It's in proper format. It's got 120 pages, but it isn't a screenplay. Right. And and so it often takes a, a lot, a lot of trial and error to be able to get to that screenplay that eventually can help you break through. So impatience is certainly uh, 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 an issue with new writers thinking that uh, they don't necessarily have to put in their time. So like, you know, so a 12 month plan is not long enough is what you're telling me to start my career as a screenwriter. Yeah. I'd say 12 <laughs> years. Right. It's probably would be more realistic. Right. It have a long, yeah. I always I have a one year plan. Like you haven't need a 10 year plan and yeah. then you're just starting. And listen, there are always exceptions to the rule. I had a always. student. Of course. I had a student many years ago named Josh Schwartz, who's a, a you know, this, uh, Phenomenal showrunner. He created the the OC and you know lots and lots of other shows. The Runaways, which is uh, on Disney Plus, I think. Yeah. Uh, and just you know, right on and on and on. Amazing kid. And um, you know, he sold his first spec script for like one point seven five million dollars or something like that. Right. You know. Yeah. And and so people look to that and they're like, you know, I'm going to do that. But that's the Powerball. No, it's a lottery. It's the lottery ticket. Yeah. I call it the lottery it ticket. Uh, you know, somebody wins the Powerball lottery every week, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you should quit your job and wait for your numbers to come in. So, uh, you know, that, that, that to me is, uh, is, uh, is something that people really need to consider is, is the long term plan. 
and just having patience. Right. And that's the, that, every, every time I always, people always ask me, what, what do you, what's your biggest piece of advice? I go, patience. It took me a long time. I mean, I was just, I just was talking to uh, James uh, V. Hart, who was on the show the other day. And after doing some research on him, he, he got hook when he was in his forties <laughs> right. and he, wow. and he yeah. was, and he was bumping around Hollywood for 10, 15 years, had a couple of things produced and he was writing and getting paid to write, but nothing was getting produced. And it was, you know, then Mr. Spielberg called and life changed. <laughs> right. And but, that, and that can happen, but he really had to put in the mileage. Correct. Right? He, he had to right. get the, it took that time. Now you said something about residuals earlier, and I wanted to see what your take was on this because the game of, residuals and and those those kind of deals like the friends have and and seinfeld and you know all these residuals netflix has changed the game in regards to buyouts uh or and now i think even disney's trying to do like maybe a two-year season run or something like that and then it's done yeah. what what is what are your feelings on like that or is it you know or is that too touchy of a, to a topic to talk about <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, uh, I'm not going to pretend that that I'm an expert on that. Thankfully, I don't have to negotiate deals. I'm not an agent. So, uh, you know, I get to strict, really stick with the creative. But um, all I can tell you is this, that uh, a lot of big talent is more than willing to work for the streamers. So um, and you see that. You know, so that isn't a secret. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have uh, uh, a lot of big names, good names uh, in series and uh, a lot of big names. Look at somebody like, you know, Sandra Bullock in Bird Box uh, for Netflix. Um, we've got George Clooney coming up in. Uh, yeah. Can't wait for that movie. Yeah. I uh, can't. I read the script. It was called Good uh, Good Morning. Something I forgot the name Something, of it too. Yeah, but it, but it, it, it actually that's changed up. the title now. And and, and um, or Fincher, uh, Fincher too. He's he's. I mean, yeah, you know, and, and and so we can go on and on. This is. Uh, uh, I remember, you know, ten years ago, if your movie went to Netflix, you didn't tell people; it was embarrassing. <laughs> right. 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 You're right. You call that. It was, it, it was, you know, it was like, uh, uh, um, I, it, it, it was like the scarlet letter and, and now you'd be lucky if you could get your movie on Netflix. Right. So it's, it is amazing how it has evolved and, um, and talent wants to work with the streamers very much. So, uh, uh, so there is clearly a big future in the streamers, provided that the that their business model can be sustained. You know, I still ask myself all the time, how is Netflix going to sustain its business model when it spends so much money on content? Now, I did notice that they raised my um, yeah. monthly rate like a dollar or something, you know, eventually Netflix is going to be $25 a month. Uh, you know, I, like I feel certain for that, uh, of that, um, mm -hmm. because that's going to be the only way to hold up that model because they have, they, they must have content in order to compete. And to, and make, and, and, 
and then you got to feed the beast. It's like a constant feeding of the beast. And it's, I mean, I have a, I have a streaming service and it's small. I mean, obviously it's like a minuscule thing. And I feel like I have to constantly be putting new content up. Obviously my, my projects don't cost $200 million um, to, to, uh, to, to put them up, but it's just, it's not never ending. And also, by the way, Netflix set that priority, that, that standard up to release 15,000 things every week. Right. And, right. And, and listen, I'm glad they do. Sure. And, right. And when they, when they raised my rate a dollar, uh, yeah, I was like, I whatever, <laughs> you know, something like I appreciate Netflix. I appreciate the content. I don't love everything. But there's always something there that I can find to watch. And uh, and I suspect that it will only get better. Um, But again, they you know, they they are they are shelling out a lot of money. For content, a lot of money. Yeah. And and that and that's why you see big talent flocking there. And it's, it's kind of like a gold rush, but I agree with you. I just don't know how how long this can sustain itself because they are in obscene amounts of debt. They are in obscene amounts of debt right now. Well, but- we have to hope that they that they can figure it out because if we lose the streamers after having lost the movie theaters, uh, you're, you're- then then we're screwed. There's no, so- there's no, there, yeah, because we lost DVD. We lost VHS. We lost DVD, which was so much money, and and then yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Because yeah. if if Netflix yeah. goes down, it's it shatters a lot of things. Right. So they can't go down. And and you know people uh, will often say, oh, you know, how does Hollywood feel about Netflix? And I'm like, Netflix is Hollywood. You know, we we just it's just Hollywood is evolving. You know, there was a time when movies had no sound. You know, so no color. It's like no, no color. So (laughs) it's evolving. You know, you got you got to go with the flow. So um, yeah, uh, you know, I wish any venture the very best. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show because it means um, opportunities for my clients, which in turn keeps me employed. And there, and there you go. Now, what, when you're looking at scripts for your clients, what are you looking for? But I mean, is it just basically, I just need a good story, but is there anything specific in the scripts that maybe could give some tips to, to screenwriters? You know, I, I think generally speaking, um, I do not have a checklist. Uh, I always say that I look at scripts holistically. I'll read any script that is given to me, I will read it from beginning to end, even if I know by page 12 that the script is terrible. Uh, because actually, sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes on page 12 and 15 and even 30, I'm like, oh, my God, the script is so boring. And then a little bit later on, something happens. A Beautiful Mind, for example, I remember reading that for Russell Crowe and, and just wanting to toss it aside. Because I was like, oh, my God, this is just like a perfunctory spy thriller. And I was like, this is so boring. And then you get to that twist and you have the rug pulled out from under you. If I had tossed that script aside by page 30, and listen, I still think that that twist should have been moved up a little bit earlier in the script. But regardless, if I had tossed it aside you know, things might have been a little different for Russell Crowe. So um, so I've learned my lessons over the years to stick 
with scripts. I, I, I also learn a lot from bad writing. I actually learn more from bad writing than I do good writing. But in answer to your question, um, because I'm looking for talent, my eye is, is always drawn most importantly to the protagonist of the story, the role that my client might play. So for me, I'm looking at that. And um, uh, how does that character evolve? What is the character's journey through the story? How active is the character? How does the character change? Uh, uh, how does conflict inform the character? Uh, these are things that I look at. So often I'll read a script where sort of the stuff on the periphery I don't think is very good. But I'll say this is a terrific role. And not all that long ago, and uh, I'll make this a blind item, but there was a screenplay that I read for a client. And I thought the role was amazing, but I really felt like the story went off the tracks at about midpoint. And then for the second half of the script, I didn't really have a clue what it was about. But I was like, man, this is a good role. And that client made that film and won an Oscar nomination for best actor. Wow. So, um, you know, so my eye is always drawn first and foremost to the character and, uh, and, 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 and how I see the client in that role. Uh, so that's first and foremost for me. So that's, what's really important to me. I mean, in, a lot of times I find this, I've been speaking to so many different people in the industry and writers and screenwriters. I, I've come to realize that character, I mean, plot is very important, but you don't generally remember plots of movies. You remember characters of movies. Like I can, I remember Indiana Jones. Do I remember the plot of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yes, because I've seen it a thousand times. But if you put my my feet to the fire on Temple of Doom, I kind of remember the plot, but I remember I remember the characters. I remember all of those characters so clearly. And most importantly, at least from my experience, is that we remember the the emotionality yeah. attached to the character. Um, because ultimately, you know, uh, movies, screenplays, any art form, at least in my opinion, uh, is um, is an emotional experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? You know, if you if you go back to Aristotle, it's all about catharsis. So it so it is it is about emotion. And for me, when I read a screenplay, I want to be moved. For me, a screenplay is never should never be an intellectual exercise. That mm. doesn't mean that it can't be smart. It doesn't mean that it can't explore intellectual subjects. But ultimately, it has to be emotional. And uh, and so if I read a screenplay and uh, I feel the same way at the end as I did at the beginning, it's probably a pass. And now you said something earlier about you learn more from bad writing than you do from good writing. Can you tell us, tell us a little bit about what you learn when you read a bad script? Well, you know, you often learn sort of uh, what you shouldn't do and more importantly, why. Um, but I also think that because I've read so many scripts, I've read over 60,000 scripts in 30 plus years. So, uh, I, like I have so many stories in my head. So let's say that 
you write a screenplay and I read the screenplay and I don't think it works. Now, I can guarantee you that I have read at least a dozen screenplays very similar to your story because, you know, you're all using the same archetypes and, and, um, and tropes and motifs. And um, uh, I can then think on those other dozen screenplays and how they were able to make work what you weren't able to make work. Interesting. And then I can sort of compare and contrast. And so often I can sort of figure things out or even through rewrites, because I, I, ha I have to read a lot of rewrites. You know, I can remember, you know, a script like, um, uh, like Man on Fire with Denzel. I must have read mm -hmm. 17 or 18 different drafts of that script as it came in. But I can remember very specific scripts that I had read that didn't work. And 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 I couldn't figure out why it didn't work. I could articulate that it wasn't working, and I might even be able to say why it wasn't working, but couldn't tell you how to fix it. And then you get a rewrite that comes in, and whatever it was that I was feeling has been altered. The rewrite is much more successful, and then I'm able to look at what they did and compare it to what it was before, and then have a learning experience through that. I always bring up Matchstick Men as an example. That was the Ridley Scott, Nicolas Cage movie. Now, I don't want to screw this up, um, but in the film, he, uh, he, Nicolas Cage is a con man who meets his estranged daughter, and then they go out and do a con together. And then, spoiler alert, we find out that she has conned him. She is not his daughter. And, right, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, right. So really clever. The first draft that I read, she was his daughter. <laughs> she was his daughter. And so then you get so then you get through this third act. It never has a really interesting climax, and it really felt like something was missing, and I couldn't figure it out. And then seven months later, a rewrite comes in. And I read that. I'm like, ah, that's it. Of course, it makes total sense. This is a movie about cons. This is a movie about confidence men. So you need a, a, a great con. You need a twist in the third act, a la The Sting. Right. Um, and, you know, this has been all sort of part of my learning experience through reading so much. And, and um, you know, uh, I studied dramaturgy as a graduate student at NYU. I have an MFA. Um, but really, so much of my education has come through reading scripts and, of course, being forced to read scripts. Um, <laughs> so my education has been at gunpoint, so to speak. But, um, but I've learned a lot as a result. So you're like a database of, of story and screenplays because of just – just sitting around reading very much like um very much like uh bill murray and groundhog's day so i'll bring it back to that he's like maybe there is no god maybe he's just been around so long that he knows everything so i'm not saying you're a god sir no, but no, no. Uh, but but you but you but you do have a, a a database of all these stories in your head that helps you you know has i mean it's like a computer almost that you could just kind of go in and dab into things that's very interesting well you know a lot 
a lot of what I do is somebody saying, hey, you know, we're looking for romantic comedies for this actor. Can you, you know, come up with a list? And and so, yeah, you know, so I go into my database, uh, which is not just here, but is also on my computer, although I have a a. A, uh, a a very antediluvian kind of system, so uh, uh, it's it's very tough sometimes. I ha- it's it's really weird how I have to find projects. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I can often remember the stories, but titles now for me because there's so many titles I can't recall titles. Sometimes I'll have a coworker who will call me and say, hey, listen, you know, last week you read uh, the ABC script. And I'll say, wait, wait, wait. Uh, I don't remember that script at all. What was the log line? Because, you know, that was like 30 scripts ago for me already. <laughs> right. you know? So it's like I read it, I move on to the next. But once I get a prompt, everything opens up in my head. And then I can really remember the story. <laughs> So um, can you talk about what a screen, when a screenwriter is ready for an agent or manager? Because so many times I hear screenwriters say, all I need is that agent or manager. I just need that, that champion to just get me that deal. When are they actually ready for an agent or manager to take them on? Well, my glib answer to that is always they're ready when the agent or manager knocks on their door. Uh, because ultimately, when, when they're coming to you, Mm-hmm. you're ready. <laughs> uh, and people might say, oh, well, how do they come to you? Well, they come to you because you won the nickel fellowship. Sure. You know, or maybe you wrote some low budget film that you thought nobody would see, but, uh, you know, it, it lit Sundance on fire. So, um, uh, but ultimately it's, uh, a, one thing that any writer can do is turn to his network to get feedback on his screenplays, uh, to see what's working and what isn't working. Uh, because sometimes the writer isn't the best judge, especially when you've been working on a script for so long. <laughs> and uh, Right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, having that network of people that you trust who can read your script, uh, give you notes, and then eventually I think you can get – the feeling when uh, the notes go from from this to this, that maybe your screenplay is ready to share with representation. But that still may not mean you're ready, because in some cases, a rep might read your script and say, wow, this is great. You're a great writer. I can't sell this, though. There's no market for this. What else do you have? And then you don't have anything. Right. So maybe having that follow-up script. I used to work with an agent named Brian Sher, who's a uh, manager now. He's a he was a real wonderkind. He he was selling spec scripts at William Morris when he was in the mail room. Um, <laughs> true story. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So I have a lot of respect for him, and uh, he always used to say, "You know something? A writer only needs one script. That's all I need. I just need if a writer has only written one script, and I can sell that script. That's all that matters." But the truth is, is that often you're not writing that one script that's going to sell. It just might be enough to sort of get the door open ajar. 
Right. So having more than one project. And then, of course, helping a, rep, uh, a representative see you uh, and understand who you are. So if you do have more than one script, and there's a little bit of controversy here, but uh, I suggest that writers brand themselves and that, and right. that they stay with one genre. Because if uh, an agent or manager reads your uh, action script and they love it, but they can't sell it, but they love it and they want to see what you have next, and it is a historical romance, oh, that's going to be a big letdown. So um, it kind of sucks, I think, because writers hate the thought of having to be pigeonholed. But uh, I think branding yourself is wiser. And then eventually when you break through and you want to do other things, then your rep's job will be to help you cross over and do other things. But branding yourself so you become that guy. I also I also think there's just some common sense in it. So it's like if you write action scripts and you write one action script and on a scale from one to ten, it's a five. Then you write a second action script. This time that's a six. Then you write your third one. It's a seven. You write your fourth one. It's an eight. And then by the time you have your fifth one, it's a nine. Now you're now you've got a, a really great action script that you can share with the town that the town will be excited about. But. If you started with your first action script, you wrote that and it was a five, and then your second script is a romance, that's a five, and then you write a mystery, and that's a five, you're not, you're not necessarily growing. And the truth is, is that every time you write a script, you're a new writer anyway, you know? Right. And, and um, But so it helps to carry over some of those tools and get really, really good at doing one thing. And then a rep can sell you because if you have all different genres, a rep doesn't know how to sell you. So right. thinking along those lines help. And just getting your work out there again, you know, sharing your work with people, uh, entering it into contests that are reputable, like the Nickel Fellowship, for example. Um, Austin. That, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, you know, like really the old. In my opinion, the only contest that that matters industry wide is the nickel, right? And the um, and the studio fellowships, which are uh, these TV writers fellowships. Um, they're just good because often if you um, are if you are accepted and you do the fellowship, you are transitioned to a staff. TV job at any of those studios. And uh, so clearly that's a really beneficial uh, uh, program. But screenwriting contests like Austin or Scriptapalooza uh, or even Final Draft, um, I wouldn't say that they are accepted universally through the industry. I would say that um, a lot of them have fans but they don't have the kind of brand that the nickel fellowship does Got it. for whatever reason. Fair enough. Now you said something uh, earlier in regards to a low budget, um, a low wonder, like a kind of like a, a hit, a low budget hit. Do you recommend that screenwriters write a low budget independent film that can actually get produced? So they actually have something out in the world as opposed to just a screenplay in hand with a cup in hand. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I, I think if a 
screenwriter has access to filmmakers and money, even if she's not going to direct or even produce the movie, uh, then it would behoove her to do that. But trying to sort of second guess the industry, mm -hmm. I don't always know if that's wise. Sometimes I just think the best thing a writer should do is write the best fucking crazy ass memorable script that they can write, whether it's a gazillion dollar budget or a low budget, because the odds of it selling are slim to none anyway. Right. And what you want to do is make a splash. You want people to read your script and go, wow, I want to meet this guy. That's what you want, first and foremost. The idea of trying to sell a script is, I'm not saying that you shouldn't think that way, but, um, but again, the odds are that you're not going to sell a script. What you want to do is you want to get representation. What you want to do is get a job. You know, you want somebody to say, hey, I'm not going to make your movie, but we have a project that is similar to this, and maybe we can bring you on to do a rewrite. Let's face it, most, the majority of writers in the business, their bread and butter is through assignments. It's not spec selling. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. The spec selling thing is that lottery ticket, it's that Powerball. Um, That's right. That and and so, so I say write what you're good at, uh, write what you want to write, and write the hell out of it. Uh, you know, we're doing a logline contest right now uh, 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 on my writer's group, my Facebook writer's group. And, uh, you know, so we got about 400 loglines. And, um, you know, a lot of them, it's like you look at these and I'm like, yeah, like, man, this, this just doesn't feel like a movie to me. Right. You know, maybe the screenplay is different. Maybe the screenplay is going to take me in some, you know, other direction. Surprise me. But like, yeah, I don't know about this. That just doesn't feel like a movie. It's not it's not very exciting. Uh, doesn't really uh, uh, smack with with conflict, which is something that I always look for in a log line. You know, I want to know what the conflict is. And does it sound like it's compelling? Does it sound like it could, you know, hold up a script for 120 pages? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, um, and so I, I just, you know, I think that, that um, writers should just, just really think about what they're writing. You know, the process starts at the beginning when they're uh, uh, hatching an idea and come up with something that's really compelling. Because you have to stand out. You know, if you're just going to write that, that relationship script yeah. about, you know, you and your dad and, you know, your estrangement and you come together uh, under some sort of uh, 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 circumstance. And uh, like I've read a million of those. Look, it doesn't mean that your writing may not be brilliant. It could be brilliant. Look at Juno, right? Like mm. you read a script like Juno and the writing is really fresh. But if you heard the log line, you know, it would sound like an after school special from the 80s. It does. You're right. It does. But the writing is amazing. The problem is that it, the problem is that you have to get people to read your writing. You know, 
Diablo Cody was, she had a very popular blog. Uh, you know, I believe she had already written a novel. I think she'd even been on like the David Letterman show. Uh, and and um, Mason Novick, who was a manager, he, he approached her and said, you know, have you thought about writing a screenplay? And, um, and so she was already juiced in. It's like if you're somebody from Iowa and you have no connections and nobody's banging on your door and you write Juno, how, how are you going to get it out there? Especially when the log line is an after school like special from this. Special, right? <laughs> well, hopefully you enter it into the nickel and they recognize the writing and you win uh, or place very, very high, which perhaps opens some doors for you, as we said earlier. But um, but I, I just think that writers need to think about what they're writing and and just light it on fire, you know, light it on fire. Because I read a lot of scripts, as do many other people in this town, and a lot of them feel the same. They're just sort of homogenized. It's when you're reading a screenplay and you come across a character who's making compelling and unique choices in pursuit of whatever it is that he or she is pursuing. Right. And uh, these choices result in very unique and compelling conflicts. Then you say, wow, I'm going to remember this. And then also, as I said earlier, we remember the emotion. And and so it's like, you know, if you can write just one amazing scene that is moving, and that doesn't mean moving somebody to tears. It means mm -hmm. you could move them to laughter or move them to fear. Um, again, out of all the screenplays that I've read, I could I could tell you moments in screenplays. Like, oh, yeah, there was this one script. I don't. I don't remember what it was called. I don't really remember the story, but there's this amazing beat where A, B, C, D happens. I might even remember where I was when I read it. Because it hit you emotionally. Yes, exactly right. So, you know, those are the things that you need to be going for, you know? So, so think, so think original, think, um, uh, think emotionally, write a screenplay that is going to grab the reader by the throat, even if it is unproducible. That doesn't which, matter. Yeah, which brings me to, to the next question I had. Do you, Should screenwriters uh, that are trying to break into the business think about budget when writing? Do they write the $200 million original story that more than likely will never get produced because that's just not the way the system is working right now? Or do they, they, they make that, they write something that could be done for $20 million for Netflix? What should, should that even be a consideration? You know, I have, there's obviously two schools on that. Um, I am a pragmatist. Uh, I, you know, I'm very realistic about things. And so, yeah, I would say, listen, don't write a $500 million script. <laughs> but at the same time, I just said before, nobody's going to buy your script anyway. So go ahead and write an amazing $500 million script. The thing is this, is it's not about budget. It's, it's, it really comes down to whether the script is good or not. This is, I wish this is what people would worry about. But this is what writers don't concentrate on. They concentrate on all these things that they can control. 
like, oh, I shouldn't use we see in my screenplay. That's a no-no. Um, or uh, um, uh, uh, I can't write a big budget screenplay or, you know, all of these things that are in their control. The one thing that they don't think about is writing an amazing screenplay, because believe it or not, that is out of the control of most of most new writers. Because, look, to be honest, most new writers shouldn't be writing. They shouldn't be writing screenplays. They probably shouldn't be writing emails. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it, it's worry about your craft. Worry about the quality right. of what you're writing. Don't think about the business because great. So you write a script that Netflix can produce, but the script sucks. And as right. a result, Netflix isn't going to produce it. So what does it matter? Right. Exactly. Now, if you, if there's a writer who wants to break into television today, what should, should they write a spec script on an existing show or should they write an original piece? Uh, they should be writing uh, original pilots. Okay. Yeah. Um, however, I would say that um, a lot of the uh, studio TV fellowships that I mentioned earlier, like Warner Brothers, for example, um, they, I believe, also want to see an existing uh, a spec from an existing show. So it wouldn't hurt a both. TV writer to have both. Uh, but definitely uh, original pilot. Now, what is the biggest mistake you see screenwriters make in 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 writing screenplays? Because I'm you have a few, you've written a few, you've read a few, <laughs> so I'm sure you've read a few bad ones. What are these constant mistakes, story wise, structural wise, character wise, that you see that you just like? Oh God, I wish they would just stop this. <laughs> yeah, the number my number one on that list. And I don't really make lists, but this would be my number one, is that they create a protagonist who has nothing to do through the story. Who's just like uh, an, just an observer or just hanging on. In, inactive protagonist. So, you know, ultimately in drama, and again, you know, this is, this is the way I look at material. This is not the way everybody looks at material. Um, you know, uh, I definitely, when I, you know, first started writing and studying, um, you know, like Aristotle was definitely my guy. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I believe that, um, that you have to give your protagonist something to do. And in a film, it needs to be something that, that is, um, active and that can be filmed. So. When somebody says, yeah, so I have this really exciting story, it's, it's about a character who wants to feel safe in a world where she's lost. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what that means. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I was watching a movie the other day, and I, I can't remember it because it was bad, um, but the, the character didn't, the main character was just along for the ride. They didn't, they didn't generate the story. They didn't, because of their actions, nothing that they did affected the story. The story was going in the direction it was going to go regardless if they were in it. And they were the protagonist, which was right. just, just a weird thing as opposed to someone that is constantly moving the, the, moving the story forward in one way, shape right. or form. Right. It's, it's, it, it, so 
I will meet writers who will say, well, the character doesn't have a lot to do because this is a character piece. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me because in drama, a character is defined by the choices that she makes. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yes, you will create little idiosyncrasies for your character that texturizes the character, but that is not what creates a dramatic character. So um, in a screenplay, you give a character something to do, something important, like in Erin Brockovich, right. she spearheads a, uh, a legal case, right? So she, she sets out to win a legal case. She, she's even a lawyer. And she sets out to win a case for these cancer-stricken people who have been screwed over by some um, utility company. Right. And uh, so that's her goal, right? Her goal is to win this lawsuit. That's her goal. And now, through the movie, she sets out to achieve that goal, scene after scene after scene. And there are choices that she has to make things that she has to do, and these choices reveal who she is. So for example, she goes to some place and she needs copies, and so she lifts up her boobs, and you know she, she playfully seduces the nerdy clerk. Uh, that, that gives us an inkling of who she is. So the choices that characters make, let me just give you a very broad example, if I may. So let's say you have your, your characters walking down the street and um, he looks down at the sidewalk and he sees a wallet. Somebody had dropped their wallet and it's filled with cash. And what your character does with that wallet will help to define who the character is. If the character just leaves the wallet on the ground and walks away, that's one character. If the character takes the money and leaves the wallet behind, that's another character. If he takes the whole wallet, that's somebody else. If he takes half the money and leaves the other half, that's a different character. If he takes the wallet to the police station to return it, that's another character. If the owner of the wallet comes to the police station and offers the character a reward if the character takes it or doesn't take it also reveals character this is what reveals character in movies it is the choices your character makes it's not the novelistic details that people get caught up in like these idiosyncrasies of well this character drinks coca-cola out of a bottle rather than a can <laughs> Look, that's interesting. Like that's that is a fine piece of texture for a character, True. but it's not dramatic. It's not speaking in the language of which you are trying to tell your story. Right. So, so, and of course, you want these choices to be made within a dramatic framework. So, Aaron Brockovich is making these choices in this framework of her having to win a case, right? Or Hamlet sets out to avenge the murder of his father. 
That's that's Hamlet's journey through that five act play or Sheriff Brody in Jaws has to kill the shark. You must give your character something to do. You must give your character a goal because that keeps the character active. And it also keeps the audience engaged because we want to know what will happen. We ask ourselves, gee, will Erin win the case? And we stick around for two hours to see if she will. Will Hamlet avenge the death of his father? We stick around through five acts to see if he will. Will Sheriff Brody kill the shark? We stick around for two hours to see if he will. If you don't ask that question, there's no right. reason for the audience to stick around. Right. And, and, and we and won't. And you, and you think it's, that's story 101, but a lot of, a lot of writers don't get that sometimes. Not a lot. Not a lot. Most. Wow. I'm saying for, because I do read a lot of amateur scripts. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I also teach, so I read a lot of student scripts. That is, it is, it's like the COVID-19 of screenwriting is not giving your protagonist something to do. That is the <laughs> virus. It is a pandemic. And no matter how many times I can say this, it doesn't matter. Like sometimes I'm at these events where people pitch. So they'll come up and they'll pitch and uh, they'll, you know, spend two minutes and then I'll say, well, I'm not sure what is it that your character is doing in your story? And they don't have an answer. And I say, okay, look, you know, let me hear a pitch where your character is active, where there is a goal and your character is is traveling through the story to reach this goal. Let me hear. And then somebody comes up and does the pitch and there's no goal. I'm like, okay, I guess you didn't understand me. And so I explain it again. Who has a story where the protagonist is active and has something to do? Every hand goes up and it doesn't matter. You literally can go one after the other, after the other, after the other. So they seem to understand it, but then it gets lost in translation somewhere. Listen, screenwriting isn't easy. It's the reason why not a lot of people do it. It's right. really hard. It's really hard work. Uh, and and um, also, I think a lot of writers come at writing from, from a perspective that they're writing. You know, I always say that screenwriters are not really writers. Um, <laughs> They're really not. Because right, right. Ultimately, screenplays are constructed. They're built. The writing, the 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 writing experience, like your uh, committing mellifluous prose to the page, is not what screenwriting is about. Because nobody will see that. Right. Nobody wants you to describe a sunrise in a thousand words in a screenplay, like you would in a novel. You have to describe that same sunrise in five words in a screenplay. But get the same emotion. But get the same emotion. And keep the same, of course. So screenwriting isn't about writing. I mean, you know, look at the word playwriting, right? Like if 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 you actually look at the word playwright, it's W-R-I-G-H-T, a write, like a shipwright, right, a builder of. So you are building, you're building a screenplay. It's all about it's all about structure. It's all about how it is constructed, the way one scene is juxtaposed to another, the ebb and flow, the cause and effect, the setup and the payoff. It's all about construction. And so a lot of 
people come at screenplays as writers rather than builders. And I think it's the builders who are successful. First and foremost, look, that doesn't mean that you can't, uh, you know, uh, have beautiful writing in your sure. screenplay, sure. you know, um, but ultimately that doesn't translate to the audience experience. No, I mean, you read a Shane Black script or a Tarantino script and Tarantino's dialogue snaps and you, you will hear it. But if you look, read a Shane Black script, I still, I still love Shane's the, the descriptions. His descriptions yeah. are amazing, but no right. one will and, ever see it. <laughs> and, but he's also not trying to be literary. Right. He is, he is sort of, he is a storyteller and he's telling a story as if he were in the room almost. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, he has that very sort of specific where he's winking at the reader all along. And, um, but it's not Faulkner. No, it's not no. Right. <laughs> by any stretch. Um, now I'm going to ask you the last few questions. I ask all of my guests, what are three screenplays every screenwriter should read? Uh, <laughs> three I that hate, pop into your head. I three that pop into your head. Questions. <laughs> Um, all right, I say this, you know, because I use it in my classes. Sure. Um, insomnia. Yeah. Um, Hillary Seitz wrote a screenplay that was adapted from um, a foreign film, which country I don't recall. Swedish, I think it was Swedish. Swedish, perhaps. Yeah. And perhaps. Um, I'm not saying the movie, mind you. The screenplay is much better than the film. The screen. I believe the screenplay for Insomnia is... The actual reading experience is flawless. Interesting. I would say that is the very best screenplay that I have ever read. Wow. Um, and uh, the, no, the, the Nolan remake, the Nolan remake one, not the original script, the, the is, remake, the Hollywood remake. Correct. But again, I'm not talking about the movie. So don't go out and watch the movie. I'm talking about reading the screenplay because that was your question. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, yeah, I think that script was was and is brilliant. And and because uh, it just does everything that a screenplay should do and does it so well and in and in a fairly complicated way. Also. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So uh, so I love. That's great. And um, uh, what do you want me to say? Chinatown, <laughs> number two. I, I, you know, I don't know. Godfather, uh, Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> you know something? I, I honestly think that in some ways, once you've seen the movie, the, the screenplay experience is ruined for you. Uh, I feel like I'm lucky in the sense that I read all of these movies before they're movies. What, um, is what, dude, you were saying you read men you were you were involved with uh, man on fire which is I, I love man on fire but on the page I, I please tell me did that tony scott translation that he did for the film that kinetic energy that vibe the thing was that on the page was that even close to being on the page or was it just a completely different experience yeah, I mean, the 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 thing that's in the screenplay is the emotionality, right? The the relationship between Creasy and the girl, and and that's 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 what sells the script. Tony Scott is Tony Scott, 
and then he brings what he brings. Of course, I knew that Tony Scott was, I, I, I'm pretty sure that I knew that Tony Scott was attached to direct when I read the script. So I could probably imagine uh, the way certain things would go. Um, Got it. But ultimately, reading a screenplay before it's a movie, in my opinion, is the most beneficial uh, thing for a screenwriter. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't also read screenplays of films they love. But I say this because once you see the movie, when you read the screenplay, you are now interpreting that screenplay through the director, through the cinematographer, through the performances, through the music. It's all been done for you. When you read a, a script before it's a film, none of that is done for you. You have to bring all of that to the page. I have read a lot of mediocre screenplays that have been great films because you end up with a really good director and a really good actor and you have a, a good film. Right. Uh, and, uh, but if you're just reading that screenplay, you, you, can, you can see the flaws. So, uh, so I'm definitely an advocate of, of that. So I would tell people that if they read in the trades that um, a screenplay just sold for a million dollars, uh, try to get your hands on that script. You know, this is why you got to have a network of people, by the way. But, you know, try <laughs> try to get your hands on that script and read that script and try to understand why somebody would invest that kind right. of money into this project. Sometimes you just scratch your head. Right. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're like, wow, like I totally get this. Yeah, Joe Lesterhouse sold a, a bunch of scripts that never got produced and he got paid handsomely for them back in the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's face it. Again, the majority of scripts that sell never get made. Right. So, um, so that is not that is not unusual. I have read many scripts over the years that I uh, uh, um, uh, still feel sad that they have not been made. And and I have too. and 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 I continue to promote those scripts. So I will always continue to promote those scripts. So when somebody asks me for a list. And there's that script that I love from 15 years ago, but it's perfect for this actor. That title goes on that list. And that's how movies get made. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, seeing an interview with John Cusack who said uh, he wants his agencies like, give me the script that you can't, that no one is ever going to produce. And then they handed him being John Malkovich. Because being John, being John Malkovich is not a commercial film by any stretch of the imagination. But it was a it was brilliant. And then you give it to Spike Jones and then you put that cast together and, and it all it all worked. Um now what advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today? Right. <laughs> Period. Um, that, I, that is paramount. And create a network. So yeah. start to create a network. And and again you can do that um if you live uh uh Outside of the industry here in town, uh, you can follow people on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, there's all kinds of Facebook groups. Again, mm -hmm. I invite anybody to come to my Facebook group. It's called The Inside Pitch. Mm -hmm. And um, it is a place where you can meet people and have friends yep. and exchange screenplays with them. And uh, uh, creating that network is really 
important. Uh, those are the things that screenwriters need to be doing uh, all the time. And in my opinion, it should almost be 50-50. It should be, you know, you're writing 50% of the time and you're networking 50% of the time because one without the other is fairly useless. It's great to have an amazing script, but if you do not have a network in which to share it, then you're at a loss. And yes. yet at the same time, if you, if you have a network, but no work to share with it, then you're also at a loss. So those are, those are the things. And those are things that you can do. Those are the easy, simple things. And then, of course, you should be educating yourself. So watch movies and read screenplays. I mean, it's kind of just all basic stuff. And what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? <laughs> I'd love your reactions, by the way. Everybody who's not watching this and just his faces are amazing. <laughs> Uh, why don't you just ask me what kind of tree I, I would be? What was the question again? What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Oh, that's easy because I actually just learned it very recently. Uh -huh. You have to vacuum every day. <laughs> that's the best answer to that question No, ever. but it's absolutely true. You have to vacuum every single day. And then you don't get a lot of dust in your apartment, you know? I mean, I, I just, it, it has just, just, just come to me, you know? I'm like, because I'm always dusting all the time. It's a pain in the ass. And I just realized through COVID, I'm, every day I vacuum and I'm not I'm hardly dusting. So my advice, vacuum every day. That should be the title of a book. <laughs> vacuum every day. Maybe you and I will write it together. Yes. <laughs> Christopher, I, I truly appreciate you being on the show. I, and if people want to reach out to you, I guess the Inside Pitch uh, Facebook That's group the is the best, best way. Absolutely. That's the best place. Thank you again so much for being on the show. And, uh, and just your wealth of information has been very uh, beneficial to my tribe. So I appreciate it, my friend. Great. Thank your tribe and you be well. I want to thank Chris so much for coming on the show and dropping those knowledge bombs on the tribe. Thank you again so much, Chris. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 660. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.